I'm Ted Seides, and this is Private Equity Deals. This show is an exploration of deals in the private markets. Through conversations with private equity managers, we'll dive into individual deals to learn about deal dynamics, companies, and ownership that make private equity a force in institutional portfolios and the global economy. You can keep up to date and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Clients of capital allocators or guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's private equity deals, Jared Levine discusses Bullhorn. Jared is a managing director at Stonepoint Capital, a financial services specialist that's invested $21 billion across 135 businesses in the space. He helps lead the firm's investments in business services and human capital management. Bullhorn is a leading global software provider for the staffing, recruiting, and contingent labor industry, servicing over 10,000 staffing agencies worldwide. Stonepoint acquired Bullhorn in September 2020 as the fifth private equity owner of the business. We discuss Bullhorn's history, Stonepoint's rationale for human capital as a subsector focus, its multi-year proactive search for the best business in the space, transaction dynamics during COVID, playbook as an industry expert, potential risks to the investment, exit strategy, and lessons learned. Please enjoy my conversation with Jared Levine. Jared, great to see you. Thank you for having me. You bet. So we're going to talk about Bullhorn. I love starting these with a little elevator pitch so people can level set if they haven't listened to the episode on Capital Allocators with Chuck. Happy to and and hard to follow Chuck. And I'll try and keep it to like five to 10 floors of the elevator, not go all the way up to the 50th floor. (laughs) But the quick history on us, Stonepoint Capital, we're a private equity firm, invests exclusively in and around the financial services industry, which we define fairly broadly. We started as a part of Marsh McLennan, the large insurance broker in the 80s, initially focused on investments in and around the P&C insurance space. And our current leadership team, Chuck, who obviously a former guest on the podcast, Steve Friedman from Goldman Sachs, Jim Carrey, Nick Zerbe, David Wormuth, joined in the late 90s and really broadened out our platform beyond just P&C insurance into all of financial services, which we define really broadly in things like banks, insurance, asset management, healthcare, real estate, fintech. And then obviously, we're going to talk about Bullhorn today, an area that we're going to talk about human capital management, which has become a really big practice area for us. We spun out of Marsh in 2005. At that time, we were managing roughly a billion-dollar fund, and we just closed on our ninth fund. So we've raised six funds since then, and our most recent fund is now just about $9 billion in committed capital. And we've got 140 employees across the broad Stone Point ecosystem, 120 supporting our main private equity platform, and then a bunch of folks who are with us focusing on our credit initiatives. That's been helpful both for our new deals and for other initiatives. And we've got a lot of continuity in our team and tenure with our senior folks. All right. So let's dive into Bullhorn. And why don't you just start with, what is this company? Happy to. And I'll take a step back because when we look at Bullhorn and we think about the Stonepoint investment process, because we're so sector focused, everything we do is really focused on an industry, a sector, and a vertical. And Bullhorn sits inside of our human capital management elephant, as we call it, which is our sector evaluation. Two-second elevator pitch on that sector and how we got to Bullhorn. 
HCM has been a really big practice area for us. And specifically within human capital management, we've done a lot of work in and around contingent or non-employee labor. And within the HCM ecosystem, our macro thesis that we've seen is we've witnessed this secular shift in the importance of labor and of human capital at organizations. And it's really evolved from an area that organizations looked at as the first line of defense for cost cuts, a way to make EBITDA when the budget's in trouble. And now human capital has become, frankly, an organization's most important asset. And we experienced it, all the conversations we have with companies They continually cite that human capital is their most important asset, their people, their culture, their team is what matters to them. And we think, and we've seen that that's going to spur continued long-term investment in the HCM industry. And within that, contingent or non-employee labor is an area that we've had a real thesis around and spent a lot of time in. And I shared this with our LPs at our annual meeting, but some of these stats, they're so large, it's worth sharing. But today, over 40%, 40% of the workforce today is non-employee and contingent, whether it be 1099, gig, staffing. And it represents over $3.7 trillion of annual spending by companies. And there's a lot of really well-known trends that are underpinning this growth, whether it be the talent shortage, the war for talent that we all read about in the Wall Street Journal every day, growth of the gig economy, increasing employee preferences for flexibility and for agility, and the difficulty to recruit and hire specialized skill sets and specialized labor, particularly in fields like technology which has really been driven a lot of the growth there. So against that backdrop, Bullhorn is the largest provider of technology to the staffing, recruiting, and broadly contingent labor space. Works with over 10,000 different staffing and recruiting firms globally, US, Europe, Asia. And think of it as the core system of record or the central nervous system that a staffing and recruiting firm uses to manage their entire business. It is the screen login technology vendor that the employees of a staffing and recruiting firm log into every single day to interact with their clients, to identify talent, to manage billing, compliance, payroll. It is the everything of the platform. Business is founded in 1999, led by its founder and CEO today, Art Pappas, who's been with the business continually since then. Don't go into too many details about the financial metrics, but just to give you a flavor, the company has over 1,500 employees and annual revenues are crossing 400 million with really strong organic growth, EBITDA margins, and free cash flow. A couple things on how you got to this human resources vertical, right? So Stone Point's known for financial services. Now we're talking about a company that sounds a lot like what you hear, this mission-critical software. Now you think of the specialists, Toma Bravo is just on the show, in that vertical. How does this fit into Stone Point? It's interesting. We actually had this conversation with our limited partners at our annual meeting, but it dates back to our days in employee benefits. And we've built out the human capital management elephant, frankly, over 20 years. And one of the things, given our sector expertise and sector focus, the way we approach these things is we're always looking to expand upon the next order of inquiry. And so we started, if you really go back, all of our investments in and around HR stem from the work we did at Marsh around human capital management, benefits, HR. And that led us to that whole elephant, but that led us to the next order of inquiry, which came around core payroll and HR. And we've been one of, if not the most active investors in the traditional payroll and HR space. We've made a variety of investments in both service providers, payroll processors, and software firms that actually are providing the technology to enable companies to process their payroll and manage their benefits. And from that area, that's how we identified the next order of inquiry, which is really around contingent labor. And we saw that through our work in core payroll, the stats I just cited for you earlier, that contingent labor was growing 
it had evolved from being purely surge and augmentative resources into a mission critical component of an organization's talent management and talent acquisition strategy. So against that backdrop, after all the work we've done in core payroll and HR, we started embarking on multi-year searches in and around the contingent labor space. And that led us to a partnership in 2018 with a company called the Eliason Group, which is one of the largest providers of IT staffing, professional services, human capital, two financial services and healthcare firms focused on technology resources. So they're providing really critical, differentiated technologists to banks, insurance companies, asset managers. That was our first entree into the space. And as we were due diligencing and spending time with the folks at Eliason, and frankly, others, we looked at many platforms where we got to Eliason, we spent a lot of time due diligencing their technology platform, which was Bullhorn. It was mission critical to their business. It was critical to our underwriting. It was also important because we had a perspective that we were going to be able to grow this platform. We need to know the technology could grow with it. So we spent a lot of time doing due diligence on the platform. We actually have logins at Stonepoint. We were in there messing around with the system, got to know the team in the system, and we came away highly impressed with the quality of their platform and their team and where they were going. And we saw that as a user, and I can go into it, but frankly, we not only saw that as a user then, but we saw that as Eliason has been really acquisitive in the course of our partnership. They've looked at over 100 tuck-in acquisitions. Every one of them has some sort of technology system, whether it's Bullhorn, a third party, or homegrown system. It became very clear to us that Bullhorn was the platform of choice. The long-winded answer to go back to how do we get here We're not a software shop. We are not software specialists. We're sector specialists. And in and around this area of human capital, we think we've got a really differentiated edge and perspective. And so we were able to get into this opportunity and differentiate ourselves with a team and due diligence at understanding the underlying sector more than the software. So Art Pappas was running this business from its founding. How did the ownership transition over those 20 or so years before you bought it? It's got a circuitous journey and they've all got bumps in the road. Every company's a snowflake, so they've got their own different trends. But they'd raised a variety of venture and private equity rounds prior to our involvement, most recently with a handful of software-focused private equity firms. Before us, it was majority owned by Insight and Genstar, two well-known software private equity firms. Before them, it was owned by folks at Vista. So Art and his team had gone through and partnered with blue chip software investors prior to our involvement. In a lot of ways, that's what spurred and catalyzed their desire to bring in a different type of partner here, not better, just different. And we brought in a sector-focused perspective that complemented what he and the team had gotten in the course of their partnership with Insight and Genstar and Vista over the years. How different is it having a firm that's a sector specialist versus I'd imagine some of the larger private equity shops may have verticals within it? I can't tell you how it is at those firms. I'll tell you what it is here for us where it's worked really well. Financial services is such a big industry. We've got 70 some odd, 100 some odd different sub-verticals and teams that specialize in those areas. It's powerful for us because when we talk to Art Pappas, we can talk about nuances of the human capital management and staffing space in a way that a generalist probably can't. I have colleagues and partners who can talk mortgage, who can talk consumer finance, who can talk asset and wealth management in a way that those leadership teams do it. For us, we've leaned so heavily into that sector expertise and we're organized to do so and we encourage our teams to do so. It works for us. That's been a model that we've encouraged over the years. So you mentioned 
a number of features of Bullhorn that are super attractive as a company. You've got a trend behind it that's very strong, mission-critical software, recurring revenue model, entrenched management team who knows how to work with private equity. You've got a lot of really interesting things going. What was wrong with it? Because there's always risks in any investment you go into. It's a great question. There were definitely risks. The risks here is really the when we did it. Because there are obviously features of any business and due diligence and considerations. But I think the biggest concern that we had to get our investment committee comfortable with here was making an investment in the human capital management space in September of 2020 in a fairly uncertain time period for not only the broader economy, but the labor economy. We had to do a lot of work to get our group comfortable around how we had conviction in what was going to happen to employment, what was going to happen to the staffing industry when we were all still nervous about Lysoling our pizza boxes before we were having dinner. How did you get that conviction? This is where our network and our relationship became critical. And it's probably one of the more interesting features of this transaction. If you take a step back in April 2020, the largest trade publication in the industry, SIA, came out with its forecast for the industry. And it was 20% decline for the staffing space. Prolonged period of dislocation was going to take three plus years to recover. From that information, if that's what you were basing your evaluation on, very difficult to underwrite the space. Through our partnerships with Eliason and another portfolio company, Prism HR, which spends time doing a lot of work in the payroll space, focusing on staffing firms, we saw data at our portfolio companies much more quickly that painted a different picture than what expectations initially would have suggested. We really dig in with our partners. We were seeing daily data. And what we saw was that instead of this severe downdraft, no chance of recovery, by the end of the second quarter in 2020, we saw the industry really flatten out and a much less severe downdraft, and most importantly, resume organic growth that frankly has persisted until the current day. And we not only had that data through all of our relationships in and around the space, because we've been so active in the staffing space, we were seeing it. That's what the trend was. Armed with that information, we were able to gain conviction in our underwriting of Bullhorn, and we had a belief that we were really seeing that real-time data and the resiliency of the staffing space. That was a hard thing to do at the time. Based on what you see in labor force, we're really thrilled that we did it. How did you think about the stability of that data? So you saw the data turning, but in COVID, nobody knew what was going to happen. How did you risk manage that in your process? It's a great question, and there's no perfect answer, but it came down to, I think if it was one data source, we'd been really nervous. It wasn't one data source. It was multiple data sources for multiple touch points. It was reference calls with the right people. Again, we had so many touch points. We'd known this company. We'd been looking at this space for years. We were seeing the trends play out, and they've played out even better than we would have expected. One story that always resonated with me is a staffing firm who provides technology resources to a large global financial services firm. And they were talking about in May, we we're asking the question, are you really seeing the resiliency right now? Are you really deploying resources in May of 2020? They just deployed 50 plus resources to a large asset management company. And these people are pulling up into the parking lot and people are coming out of the offices in hazmat suits with Ziploc bags, with their laptops and information and deploying it. And it became really apparent to us that the mission critical nature of the work that was being done by these staffing firms was just that, could not be turned off. We saw it, we heard it from clients, we saw it from providers. There was clearly risk in it, the preponderance of data from the variety of sources and the fact that we'd seen this trend play out over years gave us the conviction to underwrite the investment. Let's go through the deal itself. The company at the time is owned by Insight Genstar. You got this dicey time. How do you go about winning this deal? 
Interestingly enough, this is one of those off-market proprietary, we like to say we manufactured this one. If you go back in time, they were preparing a broader process in the early part of 2020, which they not surprisingly pulled when the world did what it did. We had a great long-standing relationship with Art Pappas and his team, again, through Eliasson, through Prism HR, which is another portfolio company and an important strategic partner of Bullhorn. We knew the team really well, had a great relationship with them, and stayed really close to them throughout the pandemic. Art and his team were looking to bring in a new partner who could complement the software sponsorship they'd had for over a decade and bring some sector expertise because that's where they thought the next evolution of the business was going to be really helpful, having some sector expertise to complement the software sponsorship. We, Art and the team, collectively went together to his existing sponsors and we pitched a transaction, negotiated in a proprietary one-off manner, shook hands in late summer 2020. We had three weeks end-to-end standing start to complete our diligence, lock in our financing, and sign a deal. It took a lot of long nights, a lot of pots of coffee. We really had to get comfortable with Zoom very quickly because we were doing it all remotely. But we hit that timeline and we were able to get the transaction done without them ever calling another sponsor. How did you figure out price? Always the trickiest question in any transaction, especially one where there frankly wasn't price discovery. In this situation, we had a hand-shook negotiated deal up front. The benefit that it's a software business with multiple trades in the past is there's a lot of private equity activity in and around large enterprise software deals. So there was some pretty good comparables out there that we could get comfortable with and what valuations were going to be in and around the space. Which is what at the time? You would have seen at the time ranges of anywhere from high teens to mid-20 EBITDA multiples for enterprise software companies. And then the range is predicated on growth rate, market position, leadership size. And you can take a guess given where Bullhorn's position is and his performance, where it falls in that range. And then obviously there was probably some beneficiary of the structure and the transaction in that we were acting in uncertain times. So on the spectrum, we had a pretty good understanding of where multiples in this space and sector had traded. And there was some appreciation for the fact that we were acting in pretty uncertain times in a one-off nature. In that period of time, what EBITDA were you working with? Presumably in Q2 or whatever, everybody had some softness. The company had a budget for 2020. And not surprising, this is the middle of 2020, that number included pretty severe dislocation. And they had some expectation. Now, there's some great airbags in their business that were going to protect them on contractual minimums and some levers that they could pull. But it was not the growth year they were initially forecasting at the beginning of the year. And that was where the deal was priced off of. So we had a 2020 forecast that the company had conviction in that reflected a downdraft, that reflected the decline that I said earlier in the conversation. Interestingly, and this is one of those rare situations, during the course of our due diligence on Bullhorn, in the course of our evaluation, between when we shook hands and got to the signing table, that projection on their part was revised upwards almost 10%. So one of the rare situations that we see those numbers, management projections actually be conservative. And ultimately, when we looked at the end of the year through 2020, the ultimate 2020 figures outperformed initial expectations by almost 20%. So we saw real growth in the business. We did a lot of work on the EBITDA. We did a lot of work on the diligence in the business. Again, our conviction in the space and what we saw happening during the course of 2020 really helped us to build our models. Again, you're never perfect, you're never clairvoyant, but we're able to use a lot of different proprietary data that helped us gain comfort around the financial profile. What happens if it were an auction? Because presumably you still want to own that asset. It fits into your space, they're the market leader. You just pay more? You hope that's not the case. We'd all be naive to say that you don't have to be competitive on price, but I do think that's where 
the relationship with the team, the post-investment value add, and the relationship and willingness to let the existing investors roll in all become considerations. Sometimes knowing the asset so well, the team so well, the space so well, the value creation plan so well, gives you conviction more in the price that you're going to have to pay. Because if you have that understanding of the space, this is an example, we're looking at tuck-ins before we signed a deal. That's not rare for us. That's probably more common than not. So you can look at a price and say, okay, I understand where I am, but I see several tuck-in acquisitions that are on the horizon that are going to be able to get our valuation to a point that we feel better about maybe than we have to win the transaction. And so all that stuff comes together. A lot of times the relationship with the team matters because if you're a founder business who's going to stay there and who frankly cares about the next trade, you are looking at situations and saying, well, I want to pick my partner. Of course, if there's a differential that's so wide, that's a factor. But I would liken it more that it's not that you have to pay more, but you're going to get the tie goes to the runner. You're going to get that opportunity to say, these partners are going to be so great for us. This is where I want it. And a lot of times these folks are not focused on this trade. It's the next trade. It's the trade after. It's how do I grow my business? How do I triple it? So when you're sitting down and thinking about the people on the other side of the table, they've pulled the deal. They're seeing maybe not the same outside data, but they're seeing what's going on inside the company. Why do you think they were willing to sell then rather than waiting it out? One of the unique features of our model is given that we're such sector experts, we're touching these industries so many different ways, we had really high conviction in it. We had high conviction in the contingent labor space earlier, and that gave us the conviction to want to partner the transaction. I think they looked to sell for, my guess is a variety of reasons. It was uncertain times. They were looking and saying, we were planning to do something this year. Now we're going to have to wait two plus years. Here's a partner that we've done deals with before that has a great reputation that our management team walked into the room and said, we'd like to partner with the folks at Stonepoint. We think they could add a lot of value. And they're willing to move quickly, have conviction in the space, not say to us, oh, hey, we have to go and commission an industry study on the space. It's going to take seven weeks. And no, no, these are people who understand the industry, are invested in our clients, are convicted in the space. We've known them for years. They say they're going to do it. They're going to do it. They're going to shake hands. And that means a lot. When you put all that together, it gave them conviction that we were going to be a good and trustworthy counterparty to get a transaction done. Interestingly, in the course of the evaluation, they got excited about the future of Bullhorn 2 and what we could collectively do together. And one of the things that's cool here is both Insight and Genstar rolled a considerable portion alongside us in the transaction. And we've seen that in a couple of our software investments in this space where the perspective is our industry expertise can complement really nicely the software expertise of others. And together, we can help these organizations be really great and accomplish some really exciting things. So I don't know the exact, but when you put it all together, the chance for liquidity to work with a counterparty who was going to do exactly what they say, it was a great outcome for them. And I think they're going to do really well in their rollover. So let's turn a little bit to your ownership and the game plan when you buy this. So you've mentioned you're bringing in this industry expertise. It's clearly been owned by some of the top software investors. So you'd think some of those levers may have been pulled over the years. What is it that you were bringing to the table from this industry knowledge that would help drive the economics of the business? There are really three things that I would put there in that category, broadly defined. One, obviously, is client introductions. And Bullhorn is as well known in this industry as any provider. But at the same time, we're probably one of the more active investors in this HCM space. And unlike their existing sponsors who are software-focused investors, the fact that we traffic in all of their clients, have met with, talked to, engaged with, potentially evaluated, was a really nice fact pattern for them. So we could help them get to potential clients and relationships, not the world that their existing partners ever trafficked. So that's one important area. 
The second is Tuck and M&A has been a really important piece of a lot of our partnerships. We've backed a lot of businesses that were acquisitive. Bullhorn fits that category. They've done north of 10 acquisitions for since we've partnered with them. One of the nice compliments, not that the existing investors weren't supportive of M&A, but the fact that we traffic in the space, we actually had a really good understanding and good relationships with a lot of different providers, small ones, large ones. Again, go back to the example, we evaluated 100 plus staffing opportunities in the course of our investment with Eliasson, we saw a lot of different technology platforms that we could help. And so we were strategically helpful in evaluating some tuck-in acquisitions. And then finally, the perspective we bring to the table for strategic discussions around product initiatives, around where to invest time, around where to focus the team is actually really fun. We have this at the board level and we chat about this all the time because one of the things that we really do bring from our knowledge is where are your clients spending money? Where are your clients spending time? What is important to your clients? Does Bullhorn have that as a vendor to their clients? Of course they do. Can they talk to their clients? Absolutely. It's very different when you're really in the family and you're bringing that perspective. And we can, as an example, assimilate data from 100 different staffing firms and on an anonymized basis, help Bullhorn understand, hey, you're the most important vendor to these clients, but here's all this spending opportunity that you're not capturing that they're getting from another provider, from somebody else. Should we be capturing that? Here's the things that are important to your most important clients. Here's where they're investing in their businesses. How do we help our product make them better? Because if we can make them better, we'll grow with them, we'll make more money. That's a different conversation than the company had prior to our involvement, just because all our team does is this human capital space. So it's complementary. There's things that the Insight folks and the GenStar folks bring table that we don't understand that we'll never be able to help with. When you think about that sector expertise, it can be really fun, especially for companies with the profile of Bullhorn. So you have the same CEO for this whole time, 23 years. When does he start thinking about over the period of your ownership or at some point in time when he's ready to move on? That's a really great question. And I think a lot of private equity firms have different views on this. If you were to think about on the spectrum, we are as far to the management-centric side of the spectrum at Stonepoint as you can get. Alignment's our number one credo. Management is probably the most important facet of our due diligence, and we're not operators. We don't have a stable of operating partners that come in and run a business. Our investment thesis and plan typically isn't to go in and make changes. It's to find great businesses that we can help around the edges and be a great partner to. So I say all that to say, in this situation, Art and his team are as excited about the business today as they've ever been. And when we came into it, I don't think there was any expectation of that changing anytime soon. Now, obviously, it's a hungry management team. He's made real investments in it. We're aligned with them. They rolled a considerable portion of their equity alongside us. And at least our underwriting and our current expectation and our current relationship with the team is we're going to be in it together with them for the long haul. And how about financing the transaction? One of the reasons I wanted to make the point on the number of folks we have at the firm that we've built out a really nice credit arm, I think that was a huge differentiator for us. And you go back and think about three weeks to complete a transaction and get committed financing on a large leverage buyout was not easy. To Insight and Genstar's credit, it already had a great relationship with the financing community and it had some portable financing that we could piggyback on top of. We were able to secure a really attractive financing package in that Q3 2020 timeline that not only got the transaction done, but importantly has scaled with the business. So we've been able to continue to invest in the company and support our Tuck and M&A initiatives. So we've been able to really efficiently finance the company and grow it over time. A lot of credit to our team at Stonepoint Capital Markets. They understand the business. They've looked at all the same staffing firms. They've looked at all the trends. It was really critical in getting the deal done. How do you think about the optimal capital structure for a business like this? 
That's a question we debate even today. And I think that's evolved over time. And you've seen it in private equity transactions, given where rates are moving. We are continually evaluating that. Every private equity firm is going to have to do some real cash flow modeling, really understand the needs, really understand how much debt can you support given where interest rates are going to go and how much do you fix versus floating. So given the nature of this type of business, which has really high retention, both gross and net, and really strong cash flow conversion, like a lot of enterprise software businesses, we've been able to take leverage more than a traditional services business. Given the background of the company, we were probably more conservative than where we could have pushed leverage to. We don't like to max out leverage, especially initially in a transaction, especially when M&A is going to be a part of the thesis. So what does that equate to in rough numbers? If you were to look at comparables and software companies, you would see businesses get to that upper high single digit multiple of EBITDA level. If you were to look at services businesses, you'd be in the midpoint of that, that five-ish range. You can make a reasonable assumption that the way we capitalized Bullhorn is we did not take max leverage by any stretch, and we went at a little bit of a premium to where services companies typically trade at, just given the recurring nature of the contracts, the business can support it. And again, we did a lot of modeling to make sure that the company's cash flows could support the leverage. We don't ever want a business to feel choked by the debt. And we like to say, we don't want our CEOs and CFOs to wake up every day thinking about paying off their interest. The moment you get to that point, you stop investing for growth. You stop doing the smart things for the business. So we take leverage where it's prudent. We actually believe it's important to communicate that upfront with your partners. We want to make sure that they're comfortable with the leverage level because they're the ones who are going to have to make those payments every quarter. I'm curious, as multiples across everything in private equity have gone up over the last bunch of years, you have these structures now. So let's just take rough midpoints of my words, not yours, of what you said, say a mid to high single digits, debt multiple, and then maybe a high teens type of business multiple. So rough numbers, say 50% debt to EBITDA. How do you think about the returns you could generate compared to the business might support the same debt load, but in the past, you might be paying a few turns less in enterprise value for the business? It's a great question. Again, we spent a lot of time modeling it. A lot of it comes down to the individual underlying business. As multiples have gone up across the sector, it puts more pressure on our underwriting. And I think personally puts more pressure on whether it's Stonepoint or other private equity firms, but anyone looking in what we do to make sure that you're not paying A plus prices for not A plus businesses. Because the reality is, if you look at the modeling and the numbers and the businesses, if the company has strong organic growth, if the company has strong ability to augment organic growth with Tucken M&A, if the EBITDA is clean and can generate cash flow on that EBITDA, and it's not a number that's not going to convert to cash flow for, for years to come, you can still support those high levels and generate really attractive returns. The issue becomes when the businesses don't have those strong growth profiles or don't have those strong Tucken M&A capabilities or don't have the market leadership position, that's when you start to see issues. So I think it puts more pressure on us and we spend a lot of time. It's one of the reasons that our investment process is so geared on our multi-year proactive outbound search because we want to make sure we're partnering with the best providers in their space with really good secular fundamentals. And importantly, we often are focusing on what are we going to do to help add value before we even made the investment. We don't go in there and then say, hey, let's think about tuck-ins. More often than not, we're talking about the tuck-ins before we've completed the deal. Because we see what you see, we're going to have to find a way to make sure we can support those multiples. And oftentimes, we're modeling multiple compression in our base case. So we're seeing returns in spite of what we've assumed the multiple compression. Now, we've been wrong for 10 years because multiples have gone up and up and up, but we're always modeling conservatively on that front. So what's happened over the last two years since you bought the company? 
it's been a really strong start to the partnership. As I said early, rare situation where the company significantly outperforms its initial expectations, that's rolled through over the last two years. We've generated consistent growth in excess of 20%. Excitingly, the company's bookings, which is a software metric for new software sales, over the last two years has averaged over 2x what the company's best years were prior to COVID. And they're seeing that acceleration of the contingent labor space and frankly, the war for talent, all the trends that have accelerated coming out of COVID and more and more of these organizations are embracing their technology. So as these staffing firms are leaning into their technology, they're purchasing more services from Bullhorn, a lot of our new initiatives. They're investing more and being more efficient and driving more automation. They've got the same challenges. They've got remote work. They've got to navigate a really challenging labor environment. Technology helps them be more efficient. So we're seeing the acceleration of bookings, and that has also led to continued strong revenue and EBITDA growth. We're running several years ahead of our initial underwriting expectations. We've also been able to augment that with our tuck and acquisition engine. We've done four transactions since we closed on our deal. We've got several others in the pipeline. So it's early. It's a really strong and fun partnership. It's a terrific team. We have a really great time working with them. We're thrilled that they wanted to be in business with us. Uh, and the early returns on the partnership have been really exciting. And we see a lot of good momentum from here. So that 2x bookings relative to where it had been in the past, how much of that is some form of beta? You were right about the space versus anything specific that you've done as partners in the business. We are really understanding of at the end of the day, we partner with a terrific team. And we think that's more on us to make sure we live up to being a good partner. But ultimately, they're the ones running the business every day. We don't get in there and operate. We're helping. Pick as high a number as you can credit to the team and give us some small sliver. If you really want to say where we've been most helpful to them is we've empowered them to execute on their vision and we've helped in any way that we can. Have there been client introductions that we've been able to probably nudge? Sure. Have there been some investments that we've supported that they had real conviction to execute? Absolutely. At the end of the day, the team is running the business. They're doing a terrific job. And the most important thing we can do is be a great supporter to them in any way they need it. And that's what we instill in our team. It's very rare that even the most successful investments from purchase to exit don't have some bumps in the road. It doesn't sound like there's been that many yet. So I'm curious what might happen from here that could go awry. We look at that every single day, every single time we have a conversation, we're always looking around the corner, what could go wrong? We are thankful that nothing has yet, but we would all be naive to think it won't. We continue to look at macroeconomic factors that could impact the business. We are thrilled the resiliency of the staffing space and the human capital broader ecosystem thus far, but we look at that data every single day, every single week, every single month to look at trends to see is something changing that we need to position the business for. We want to be seeing those trends as near real-time as possible and have as good of an open dialogue with the team to be able to pivot, make changes, make investments, make tough cut decisions if we have to in the event something happens. We're watching that really closely. Every private equity firm, ourselves included, is staring at what's going on in the economy right now and forecasting into 23, and it's uncertain. The data continues to look really strong at Bullhorn, but we look at it, we stare at it, we prepare for it. We think we're partnered with an incredible team. Ultimately, if you've got great partnership with a deep management team, and it's more than just art, it's a terrific team beneath art who all align with us, who we spent so much time with. If you've got great partners locked arm in arm, aligned to drive long-term value creation in a business, we feel like we'll be able to navigate choppy waters or a storm, whatever metaphor you want to put out there. That's why that match piece is so important to us. So to some degree, we don't even know what the issue could be. We got to be looking for it. We're looking around every corner. We're looking under every rock. We want to make sure we got a great team that we can help when that time comes. So as you look out 
it's still early days. Bullhorn's had a couple of different private equity owners. They're used to a private equity firm owning it for a period of time and selling it to somebody else. How are you thinking about the duration of your investment and ultimately an exit strategy? We don't engineer an exit at Stonepoint. That tends to be our exit philosophy. We're not the type of firm that says, let's get the company to X million dollars of revenue and then it's time to flip. We tend to be longer term holders. When we see a business that we love, that has great secular fundamentals, we don't see a need to exit until the team wants to exit. And again, alignment's so critical because they give us the guidance sometimes on when it's the time to bring in a new investor or to do a recap or to do a transaction. We're saying to ourselves, let's continue to make thoughtful, long-term investments. Let's continue to build this business. Let's continue to invest both organically and inorganically. If we do all that, we're going to have a business that has terrific fundamentals in a great market with a market leadership position we don't think we'll have any lack of exit opportunities, whether it be another private equity firm, whether it be strategics, or even potentially a public market alternative. It's probably an unsatisfying answer. We don't have as cookie cutter of a model on that, but our view is if we do the right things, the business will be well positioned whenever that time comes. And we're going to take our cues from the management team who's locked arm in arm with us to tell us when it's time. Inevitably, some of your portfolio companies, those a Bullhorn or another one, You'll have that thesis that you're not engineering an exit, but you also have the reality of a fund with a term on it. What happens when those two things conflict? I don't know if they ever really conflict as much as their considerations. And it's one of the reasons we like to be aligned with our partners. They've got material equity invested in the company as well, both direct equity and incentive unit plans where they want liquidity too. So I don't know that we're ever misaligned in that there is always a desire at some point for liquidity, and that just becomes a consideration. We've had creative structures in the past, as have others, and you read about it in the private equity industry, whether it be fund-to-fund transactions, whether it be continuation vehicles. So it goes back to if you're creative enough, there's no lack of exit alternatives. And we approach every transaction both on the way in and on the way out as a clean sheet of paper. And we say to ourselves, what are we solving for? What are the needs, whether it be of our fund, of our management team, of our co-investors? I think it's important to have real-time, honest dialogue and feedback with your teams on that to make sure that the considerations of all stakeholders are met. If that's considered, we've always been able to find a way to generate an exit, whether it be to a third-party sale, fund-to-fund transactions, continuation vehicles, public markets. We've been able to find ways to exit. What do those conversations with management teams look like? It's early on, that's fine, but this is a team that's transacted multiple times. They've probably made a bunch of money from doing that multiple times. What does that sound like when you're in that room with the management team talking about that potential exit? It's a really good back and forth dialogue and debate. And a lot of times we're providing them some perspective on the markets. What are we seeing? Where are we seeing multiples? Who are we seeing as interested buyers? Because we see some things that they don't see. They've transacted multiple times, but frankly, if you flip it around, they're doing it once every three, four, five, seven, ten 10 years. We live and breathe this every single day. So a lot of times we're giving them a real-time perspective, and we've always been big believers in doing that even before we're talking about exits. So one of the things that we actually like to do is we have really open conversations with our management teams about what we see in the markets. We often present to their employee base, give them updates on the world, give them updates on private equity space so they can be informed. And again, we think that's part of our role to be a good partner to them. And then it's a back and forth conversation about needs, about where the business is. Sometimes it ends up being, we had a plan. We had a vision of what we were going to accomplish in this partnership. And we think we've succeeded on that. And now we're ready for our next leg of our growth. We're ready for what we think the next partner can bring to the table. And that can spur and catalyze a decision. And in a lot of ways, that's what got us into the partnership with Bullhorn. They had gotten to a point where they felt like they were ready for the next partner to bring something a little different, complimentary, not instead of, but in addition to. 
And that's what catalyzed our partnership. My guess is, as we continue to have these dialogue with them regularly, there'll be a moment in time where they say, okay, we've gotten through what we thought we would accomplish. And now we're ready to catalyze this to recognize some hopefully gains and play for the next evolution. So you think about where you are in this transaction, what are your biggest lessons learned? The coolest, most important feature of this deal goes back to the data. It goes back to leaning into your proprietary relationship network. That's something that's so critical for us at Stonepoint. This is a great example for us here. But when you do your diligence, in this situation, our ability to have unique perspectives and insights into the space enabled us to have conviction at a time when conviction and courage was really hard to muster. We had multiple conversations internally about it. We went through that, but we leaned into our diligence. We leaned into our data. We leaned into our relationships. And that enabled us to underwrite this deal at a really crazy time. And we're thrilled to do so. And a lesson learned on this one, when you have that data, how powerful it is. I gave you that insight at the beginning, Ted, about what the industry forecast was going to be. One of the things that we think is really cool and an example of this is in April of 21, industry came out with its revised figures surprising to many, but not to us. They revised their industry forecast upward and said the downdraft was only half as severe as they initially forecasted, but more importantly, growth in 2021 was going to far exceed the pre-pandemic levels. And so instead of this 20 plus percent industry decline, four-year period of stagnation, what they then said was going to happen was modest decline, resumption of stronger organic growth than was initially expected. That surprised many but it's consistent with the data we saw nine months earlier. The lesson learned for us is lean into your relationships, lean into your networks, lean into your data, be all over it because you don't know how valuable that's going to be at the right time, whether it be for helping your portfolio companies or in this situation, enabling you to underwrite something that was in a really challenging environment. When you talk about connecting the dots in the capital markets and proprietary data, a lot of it is public markets, people trading around quarters. You don't hear it as much about private equity. How often does this differential information that you have from being specialized in a sector impact an actual transaction? I almost want to say every day. And I will tell you at Stonepoint, we have institutionalized, we have a room called our elephant room, which is dedicated to our sector deep dive work. It is ingrained in our culture from the moment you join as an analyst all the way through Chuck. Everyone knows the importance of digging into your sectors, of digging into those relationships. It is the single most important thing that we teach and train to our junior folks all the way up. Does it every day result in a large investment like a bullhorn? Well, no, but every day we're making progress on something like a bullhorn because the reality is the bullhorn transaction took us two and a half years, if not a little bit more to get there. And it was digging into those relationships and the data every single day that got us to that point. We've not only institutionalized it, we have monthly, in the early parts of the pandemic, more frequent. Our elephant teams, our sector lead teams are presenting to the entire firm, what are we seeing through our network, through public data, through our portfolio company data? What are we seeing in the space? What are the trends? What are the themes? What are the opportunities? What are the risks? What are the challenges? We've turned that into such a critical part of what we do. That's why I say it's every day, because every single day we ask our teams to be digging into their sectors. We don't know when the opportunity is going to pop. We don't know when it's going to be there, but we need to be ready to go when it happens. If we're not thinking about it, focusing on it, digging into it, the gun's going to go off and the race is going to be over. All right, Jared, got one more for you. What's your favorite aspect of private equity? If I can answer two things, and one is awesome people. It's really cool to work with really smart people every single day who challenge you, who ask you questions, who engage. Like It's fun to work with the people every single day. But I'll say of the industry and the job, I love that every day is different. 
And if you think about private equity, every single day, every single month, every single year can look very different. There's sometimes we're deep in a new platform investment and we're running through diligence. There's sometimes we're working with portfolio companies on tuck-ins or operational initiatives. And then there are days where we're digging into the elephant work and staring at data and trying to make sense of wonky employment data and how do we figure out where the labor market's going to go. It's really fun. Every single day presents new challenges. And I think what's also in that vein, that's kind of cool. Every day, I feel like I learn something. There's no end game to private equity. There's no, I've gotten it to the master level. It just seems like there's more and more ways to get better. And you listen to so many cool people doing it. You're always learning something from somebody else and finding something you didn't think about before, seeing a new challenge, seeing a new opportunity or a new way to look at things. So I just love that fact of the job that it never gets old. And it seems like every day is something cool and different. And I find out how little I know. (laughs) Well, fantastic. Jared, thanks so much for sharing the Bullhorn story. Really fun. Really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 